0: Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Skye Gooden. Who did you speak to this time, Skye? I spoke to Jarrett Ernest. He's an artist, writer, and curator, and a new friend. He and I have found ourselves in a more or less continuous conversation about the value of art criticism lately. He playing the role of a doubting Thomas with his finger outstretched. And me, Well, I'm certainly more optimistic. (laughs) It's a debate that has spanned dinner tables, and dumpling lunches, and email and Skype. And I should mention that he's earned his concern. He's the editor behind the recent compilation of New Yorker critic Peter Sheldell's book, Hot, Cold, Heavy Light, which is an extreme pleasure to read, and brings to the fore the risk-taking and more experimental art writing that Sheldell was publishing with venues like The Village Voice before his post at The New Yorker began. No one writes a sentence like Peter Sheldel and Ernest, in his capacity as editor, but also very close friend, has shone a very loving light on his ability. Hmm. And Jared has also recently published a book of interviews, right? That's right. So he published What It Means to Write About Art. Uh, which was uh, put out by Zorner Books last year and includes 30 interviews with the legends of American art criticism. I mean, it's a very starry list, including Dave Hickey, Rosalind Krauss, Eileen Miles, Jerry Saltz, Hilton Owls, and more. It even includes conversations with the late John Ashbery and Douglas Cramp. This book was my Bible all summer long and remains at my fingers reach as I work, even to this day. And he managed to coax out very fresh, very vulnerable material from people who have been interviewed innumerable times and are in some cases quite churned against their profession. So how is he feeling about his own profession at the moment? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, given all this production, all this lifting up of our criticism's most championing voices, it makes me slightly crazy that Jared is feeling defeated by the field right now. He doesn't see there being an audience for our criticism. And my position is more, build it better, and they will come. So we Mm. get into that, and more importantly, how storytelling is the central object of his practice. Mm, I can't wait to listen.
1: Okay, so I think we've we've gotten our giggles out, and maybe we can start, you know, stop being polite and start getting real.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm Jarrett Ernest, and I am a writer.
0: So, I think of you first as a reader, and everything else follows. Well, I, uh,
1: I I'm just thinking about this. I really like the idea of myself as a reader. Uh, or as that claiming that as some part of what I do that's important. And I think you're right to see it as prefiguring a lot of the other stuff. Um, It doesn't prefigure being an artist to me, but it's, it's intimately bound. And so I, I grew up in a very rural part of central Southern Florida and I like in a freakish childhood way just responded to art and or like to aesthetics or to experiences and so like one way that that took the form which i think it does for a lot of children is egyptian art so it's like okay i became obsessed with ancient egypt but like how do you actually find out about ancient egypt on the one hand there's there's movies that are on television so i think like the Egyptians in the Ten Commandments, in which like the Pharaoh has like eye makeup and like a skirt on. I think there's a kind of sexuality aesthetic thing going on there. Also Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. Um, but from those kind of very early, like five years old kind of experiences, becoming obsessed with ancient Egypt, and going to the library, my parents always took me to the library and I could get whatever I wanted. And I just got a lot of books on Egyptian art. I like memorized hieroglyphics and I used to write in hieroglyphics and I was like really in- obsessed with them. And so my parents took me when I was like seven to a museum that was a few hours away that had a show of Egyptian art. And I later, uh, just the last year, I was thinking about that and I asked my parents about it and I said, you know, this is kind of wild. Like I can't, we weren't a family that went to cultural things um, or museums. I said, I think, you know, this is important to me because it was the first time that I ever saw art in person. And it was also the first time that um, I went to a museum. And my parents said, yeah, it was the first time we went to a museum either. Mm-hmm. Um wow. And I said <laughs> And I was like, "Well, why did you do it?" And they said, "Well, you were just so obsessed with it." And so I think that that one tells you like how sweet my parents are mm-hmm. and they were very supportive in, in in that sense, but so the majority of my life after that, you know, I I was always I was drawing and I was making stuff But the key way that I learned about art was through books. So I think that there is a very deep relationship with reading there. I'm sort of touched that you intuited that or that you've noticed that because Mm -hmm. it's not something that I necessarily had even said to myself before. But Mm I am. Yeah. So I am a reader.
0: Yeah. Well, before we get into the other the other sort of roles that you occupy and occupy so well I wonder if we can talk just one beat further about this relationship to reading I have some practical questions like do you read a didactic panel before you see an exhibition do you have any sort of okay (laughs) tell (laughs) me about that decision finish your question well we can do this in pieces tell me about why you don't
1: There's a quote, I don't know if, I haven't seen where Marcel Duchamp actually said this, and I kind of like want to throw myself into a pit for referencing Marcel Duchamp. (laughs) But I had heard, I had a teacher in art school that once said that Marcel Duchamp said that the title is like another color in the artwork. Like Mm. you make something and you give it a name. And that always made sense to me because the kind of link. the language, the discursive framework mm. through which you enter an artwork is very important. And it mm. it does a lot of work, as we know, for shaping the way that you might experience it. And I think because of my sensitivity to the power of language and also the interrelationship between language and material, I, I really want to have the shot to see the thing. Mm. You know, I, I really value... The material object. And so I really want to see the object for what it is, Mm -hmm. even though that's a very fraught endeavor. And then after having that experience, I might read the, I might go out and read the text about it if I Mm -hmm. like want to understand either because I thought it was great or because I thought it was, I just didn't understand it. But I mean, I don't know. I really also want to think you know, it's almost like a test. It's like a diagnostic. Like, what was this experience, and then how does that? You know, what did I get from it, and then how does that relate to the way that it's being framed, and then how might I? How might that change my understanding? Right. So yeah, I never read the panels. I don't. I mean, I never read the wall text and shows except for at the end. I don't. Um, listen to acoustic guides you know the mm-hmm. I, my idea of hell is being on a tour in which somebody is talking to me in front of an artwork right I just want to look at it <laughs> on my own so um, yeah all right so that's one thing about reading
0: okay I guess the second thing I wanted to, to ask after is sort of where does it begin and where does it stop when you're doing research on an artist um, or an art writer as we know is a is an important sort of of arm of of your publishing practice lately, you're interviewing with critics and editing Sheldol. I guess I'm wondering, of course, you're going to read their catalogue, their oeuvre. Uh, For some of these figures, that's already very ambitious. But how much further and how much further afield do you have the inclination to go? And do you ever have to sort of express some self-discipline about that research?
1: (sighs) Well, yeah, discipline always. I think that it comes from being essentially an autodidact and that mm-hmm. the way that you learn something is that you read a book and then you read something in the book that you want to know more about and then you read the other book. And it's this endless pl- yeah. proliferation of reading. And that's how I approach kind of everything. Um, and and it's funny because you do have – it gets a point where – I have to kind of artificially cauterize some things, where because I just I, I'm interested in everything. Like mm-hmm. I, I honestly am interested in like a certain level of uh, detailed information about almost anything, mm-hmm. which is like I'm really bad socially and that I don't care about small talk. Like I can't, I almost can't do it. Like it's like I have a problem. Mm-hmm. But almost everyone that you meet in the world knows something in detail that you don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, if you are a plumber or you do um, estate taxes for rich people in the Hudson Valley, like that's a little bit of insight into some part of, of the world that like I might never come in contact with, sure. but it's it's interesting to me. So So having that kind of curiosity means that you have to, I do eventually have to set some boundaries. Like when I first start working, I read, I read kind of widely, and I'm interested in seeing the outer edges of, of what a reference might be in relationship to, to someone. Like, I'm writing something right now about an artist um, named Teresa Hakum Cha, who is uh, an artist that I really love, who died in the 80s. But I'm, I'm writing about a project that she did at the end of her life about hands and art, and so then suddenly I'm like reading this like book on palmistry, which is like completely absurd, like um, sham science, even as like a, divinor, a divinatory tool, it's pretty goofy. But then, you know, there gets to be a moment where you're like, okay, at least now I know I don't have to read any more about that.
0: <laughs> right. You know? That's actually like, a that's, really good feeling. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like Okay. <laughs> so this, the, I've actually read, you know, enough about palm reading that I don't, I don't think I need to go there, right. but, um, the more, the closer that I get to actually working, I read less and less. And by the time I find, I find that when I'm actually writing, I'm not reading at all mm. because, um, it'll just generate more ideas and like, I don't need to open up new things. I need mm-hmm. to like close them down into a piece.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, from that sort of rhizomatic, um, Cloud of knowledge that you obtain in your research, you do a very fine job of sort of snaking us back to one single story. You are in your writing a storyteller, so I wonder if you can talk a bit about whether or not that's a decision, how you sort of arrived at uh, at that decision. Um, if so, and I also guess I want to I want to understand from your perspective what the 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 value is of storytelling. When we're when we're trying to meet great art,
1: ooh yeah. Uh, so I think that you have um, a special vantage on asking that question, which is this is a new articulation for me as okay. an artist, as a writer, which is about narrative. And I had because I'm a high maintenance interview. I sent you <laughs> a string of things that I've written recently. Yeah. You know <laughs> that. Um, that all go together and the way that they go together is of a cert- is about a certain attitude towards narrative
0: mm.
1: which is basically what i'm most interested in at the moment okay because um history and criticism are narrative forms and so if you if you think for instance about gombrick's Famous book called A Story of Art. It's like a almost like a children's level textbook, but it's very beautifully done. It's called A Story of mm-hmm. Art. It is not, and and that's what history is. It's it's a story or it's a set of stories. And what is interesting to me is trying to find new stories because what I think we've all experienced and part of what makes the art world right now feel completely nonsensical and illegible is that the kind of the dominant story of art that we have inherited um, against which a lot of writing criticism has positioned itself has completely broken down and shown itself to be um, um, irrelevant for dealing with the questions that we're now asking of each other in the world Mm. and the solution to that is to try and in The solution to that is is a narrative one, which is, okay, what are different stories? Like, how could we understand this differently? As far as we're concerned in our consciousness, an artwork isn't like a fixed thing in the world. It's an experience that we have. Mm -hmm. And that experience is marked in a very particular way by um, the specificity of the encounter, like Mm -hmm. where it is, where we are in our lives. It's a kind of unfolding. And... um, we might have multiple encounters with the same work of art over our lifetimes, which kind of aggregate up into something more meaningful. Um, but in each of those encounters, the story where we were at with our story is different and they revise, they get revised. And so I think that that is one thing that's interesting to me. And it seems like extremely fruitful is approaching the narrative or storytelling aspects of encountering a work of art with a little more intentionality or creativity rather than just kind of a default setting, right. which, I think, um, which I think is why a lot of the criticism that has been happening recently that people seem excited by is coming from people uh, who also work in fiction.
0: Okay, so your catalog essay, which I had the pleasure of reading before publication, but I gather it's that's in the offing, um, for Lisa Lisa Yuskavage. In it, you, well, first of all, you don't drop her name until, I don't know how many words in, but easily 2 1,500. I mean, it's like sort of like the the one-third mark of a fairly lengthy piece that is a, a deep pleasure to read. Um, I felt that it was sort of being pulled along almost despite my, you know, despite knowing I had other things I needed to be reviewing for you. I was like taking my time um, because of the tenor of that piece. You um, So that's one thing. I wanted to talk about sort of the device of that and the at once showmanship of it, but you do it very demurely. And so I I guess I want to talk about that approach.
1: Well, I know that like the big umbrella idea of this talk is like, what is great art to you? And I I think my we'll, we'll qualify this and get closer to an answer through the conversation. But one thing that I realized in preparing to talk with you is that there isn't any single artwork that I would think that is a great artwork on its own. Um, however, I would say that about an artist that that is a great artist. Mm. And I think partly that has to do with, um, context and how I think, the stories that we bring to an experience of art, that artwork, which is in and of itself a wonderful manifestation of, you know, form and light and color and materiality, and I really value those things. But it's also, you 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 bring it into mind in relationship to the story of the person who made it and the other artworks that um, either it's referencing or that they also made. And I think that to me, uh, even though I said that I think the the single artist biography is a convention, mm-hmm. um, it it still seems to me that that is one of the ways that we um, it's almost like a primary way that that stories around art are intelligible and 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 accessible is through mm-hmm. like the story of an artist and. Um, that doesn't, and I, I think actually great art stands outside of the person who made it. It has to, because mm. like you're not dealing with the, the artist themselves, you're dealing with the thing that they made. In a way, what I did with Lisa in that essay was extremely artificial and extremely kind of, um, it felt really weird to do because I wrote, for anyone who hasn't read the essay, I was writing it like a fairy tale. Like, I know Lisa Yuskavage very well. She's like a dear friend of mine. And I think because of that closeness, it was important to me to try and write the story as though it was not about a real person, but was about a character named Lisa Yuskavich who had mm-hmm. made these paintings. And be- it was also important to me that every aspect of it was true, which means that Lisa recognized it uh, as accurately representing her experience. But I also interviewed about 20 people for that essay who never get mentioned. But I did a kind of oral history Mm. with them, people who knew Lisa at the time, her teachers, her Mm. early dealers, people who were in her studio. And um, I took information that they gave me, their their impressions of it. And I Mm. wanted to make something that accorded with those things without ever having to quote them as as validity so I I think that the idea of writing this story of Lisa as a fairy tale gave me permission to experiment with with artifice at the level of form Mm -hmm. and so on the one hand it's funny that you isolate this thing about not naming Lisa until the middle of the essay or Mm -hmm. like the first third of the essay because Because on the one hand, that is um, almost corny. Like, I'm not sure i get away with it. Um, I actually went through a phase where I named her early on. I I wrote it like that originally, and then I named her. I went back and I named her early on, and then I took it back out. And I think the point that I was trying to make, because I start with her as like a 12 or a 13-year-old looking at art in the Philadelphia Museum, We start earlier than
0: that, remember, in the forest. Oh,
1: right. There's a flashback to her as like an eight-year-old in the forest almost getting raped. So I think that like I had this kind of vague idea because of the nature of Lisa's art, its subject matter, and the criticism around it, that she was dealing with, on one level, the experience of being a girl as a type. Um, as almost a generic type by the world mm-hmm. that could be brutalized and dismissed, and so I wanted the first part of the essay to narrate um, that experience of brutality and dismissal, and that she doesn't. And and it's like if she were murdered as an eight year old, it wouldn't have been Lisa Scavage, the great artist, that would murder be murdered. It was just a little girl, mm-hmm. and so. The moment where she gets identified as Lisa Iscavage is the moment at which, as you said, her teacher looks at her painting and said, Who are you?
0: Right. Yeah,
1: who are you? And said, I'm Lisa Escavige. It's the moment that she it's not the it's not about the person who had those experiences in, in their life. It's about the moment that she um made something from those experiences that could be legible.
0: Art Toronto, Canada's International Fair for Modern and Contemporary Art, celebrates its 20th anniversary. With over 100 international galleries, it's the biggest event of its kind in Canada, attracting more than 20,000 art collectors, professionals and enthusiasts from across the country and beyond. This year, Art Toronto presents a new program of public artworks, an expanded selection of installation projects, must-see talks and panel discussions, on-site tours, and a special spotlight on the contemporary art scene in Portugal, with its focus Portugal exhibition. Art Toronto kicks things off with a benefit for the Art Gallery of Ontario on October 24th and runs October 25th to the 27th at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. How foreign do you allow your environments or your engagements to be in order to find yourself in greater proximity to something great?
1: Well, I think, I don't, it's, it's funny to ask this because I have always been like the young precocious one and I'm now like in my mm-hmm. 30s and I'm like <laughs> not the young one anymore, which is really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember when I was in my early 20s, I always felt like it was partly the duty of a younger person to seek out the people that were doing something that was meaningful to you because they had done their work in a way they had they had done their work to make themselves visible so you could find them. You haven't yet done your work so that you're findable. Like, it's a very weird, I'm very interested in intergenerational dynamics, but I really, I like articulated that to myself. It's like, there's no way they will know that I'm me right now, Mm -hmm. or like that I'm serious on a certain level. Like, you can't find, they can't find you. Mm -hmm. It's your job as a young person to find them.
0: What have you worked out about what great art is via conversing with artists?
1: I don't feel like we're culturally in a position to even discuss greatness. I think that we have to re-examine the very foundations of history and the stories that we use and that out of that, We might be able to approach something as great, but like, I don't even think we're at the like, what is art question? Like, Mm. so it's like, if you're not, if you don't even have cultural consensus over like, what is an artwork or why would anyone make it, then it's like discussions of greatness Mm. seem impossible to me. I think that there are works of art that have meant a lot to me over time, and I'm interested in trying to chart that. Mm-hmm. And there's also works of art that have been important to other people over time. Mm-hmm. If they are a writer, they, I think, generously have shared that with other people so you can access it. I was thinking about like whether or not I had ever read incredibly important art criticism that was written about something that I really love. And I don't think so. Mm. I don't think that you need art criticism to tell you about something that you already have a deep relationship to. You need art criticism to tell you about why something you don't understand is, is important or beautiful to someone else. But I think that art criticism is, or and art history, and the the scene between the two, is vital for something becoming great at all. Like, mm-hmm. And that greatness, to me, is about the meaning that it holds in other people's lives
0: yeah okay well the second part of that question was about um art critics conversing with art critics versus artists but it seems that you've already kind of touched on this but let me ask it what have you worked out about what great art is via your conversating with critics or art writers i don't
1: know that there's like a major distinction there are contemporary artists who I think don't actually care about art and people who write about art. And those are not the people that I am talking to, <laughs> but for anyone that actually like loves art and looks closely at it, um, they, we teach each other how to care about art. You know, the kind of art that I'm interested in looks really different from each other. And the, 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 the intentions and the frameworks that artists and histories that artists are using are, there's no easy way to, to um, put them all on the same shelf. Whereas I, I have other friends who write and it's like, I, you know, I, I was at a, this is also about like, why have bad behavior? I was at an <laughs> opening recently and I was talking to a critic friend and, there wasn't, he was talking to an artist I didn't know. And they said, oh, this is so-and-so he just wrote about his work. And I said, let me guess. It's like juicy figuration, like queer figuration. And they were like, uh, no, I'm like a minimal abstract painter. And I was like, yeah, I know because <laughs> that's all this person writes about. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm so inside of it that there is like a really clear unifier between the things that I like between like Genesis Peorage and Lisa Yuskavage and Ronnie Horn and whatever. But I think of it more as like an artwork as an intersubjective, a little knot of intersubjectivity. And, um, you know, it's like plugs. I'm sitting in a house and there's like different plugs in the wall and all the plug sockets look the same, but some of the sockets don't have power going to them. Hmm. And, So the distinction between them is not a visual one. (laughs) And so I think that there's a way in which like, okay, you can look at a quote unquote minimal abstract painting and like, there's something really going on. That's interesting. Mm. And you can look at another one and it's just like dead. It's just like, there's no power. Mm. And so I think that that's what I'm after is, is trying to understand art that is really invested in, Communicating something between people. And that seems to me like a kind of power.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With your previous comment, which struck me so sharply, um, around we can't get into what is great art, we need to get into what is art. I know that you're a reader of poetry, that you bring uh, a deep knowledge of literature and love of literature to what you do in terms of art criticism, editing and the rest of it. So I guess I'm wondering if you feel that way about other media, about other genres, or is this a comment that's specific to visual art?
1: Well, I think it is specific to visual art. And here's why. I mean, I recently, speaking of bad behavior, I was at a different party, (laughs) because apparently that's all I do is go to parties and yell at people, (laughs) um, where I was talking to an editor of a very kind of fancy a cultural magazine in New York and I was said kind of blithely, you know, I don't, I don't really believe that art criticism exists and that no one wants it to exist and uh, et cetera. And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I think, you know, there are people like Emily Nussbaum Mm -hmm. or Gia Tolentino who I think are writing really interesting criticism that people care about. Note that neither of them are writing about visual art. And or like you could write about television, you can write about movies, you could write about Lululemon, and like people actually all feel invested in a certain conversation around those things and they want to participate in it. Mm-hmm. I do not feel that with visual art right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that it Um, I don't know if it's because people feel alienated from the structures of and histories of art Mm. and art criticism that they don't feel able to interact with it unless it's with a wrecking ball.
0: Mm. But Mm. also
1: one thing that I was thinking about that is um, there is this thing about the role of money in the art world. So in the poetry world, I love the poetry world, partly because I'm not in it, but also partly because there's just like, there's no money. You know what I mean? You can be like the most important living poet, and you are, in a material sense, not much better off than like the lamest living poet. When that's the case, the only thing that really matters is the interest and validation of your community as a poet. Like the other poets have to be like, yeah, what you're doing is serious enough, I want you to come... Um, read with me and then like come to my party and like whatever like there is a kind of responsibility that you feel to other poets because there's a lot of really stupid poetry right now it's the same thing where anything can be poetry but it in that situation it's like if anything can be poetry why would you waste your time doing something stupid that you don't care about because no one's getting rich off of it but with art there are people who are getting rich off of stupid bad art And it has no bearing to what anyone has to say about it. And I think some people who engage with art criticism find that so demoralizing. It's like, well, then what's the point? I think that's one of the reasons why, to me, the the real question is, we'll find a better story. Like, let's let's create a framework in which, like, that's not okay. And it has nothing to do with, like, you know, Jonas Wood being rich. You know, it's like those paintings are stupid. The people who buy them are probably stupid or not stupid. It doesn't matter. All I know is that I don't want to look at them as paintings, nor do I want to think about them or talk about them. Mm -hmm. Even writing a negative review is too much validation for Mm -hmm. the level of achievement that I think they are. So, okay, so then what, you know?
0: We had a conversation over dumplings this summer where you espoused a, a similar position around nobody cares about art criticism and i said well i don't think that's <laughs> don't think that's i don't think that's true i just don't think we've given them to, a, a reason to care for a long time so if we make it better they will come was my feeling and i guess i i i see a i see a, a kin in you in that you made the book you did. Like, why would you interview at great personal expense, no doubt, 30 titans of art criticism over the many years that that took to compile if you didn't also believe in the power of it and that it has great potential to change minds and change hearts when it comes to great art?
1: I mean, so you're just calling my bluff. <laughs> little because, <bit. laughs> Yeah, I mean... The introduction to that book and the the language that was used around it was very intentional, not to talk about the crisis of criticism. Mm. Um, It's, it was intentionally an optimistic gesture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the book, I said that I thought, in the end of the introduction, I said, I I thought of it as an, as a a bouquet and a gauntlet. Mm. So it's like, this is, a thank you to all the people who have had this art conversation. And it's a challenge for all of us to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I feel on the one hand, um, yeah, optimistic because things can change. The world could be different. And I actually think when I say what is great art, after I already told you it's impossible to describe what that would be, mm-hmm. I think the works of art that have been in important to me and entered into greatness or the work by artists that have done that are artists whose works have shown through their very existence that some aspect of the world could be different than it is or or is mutable or could tell you a different story it could give you a, a different experience mm-hmm. or at least it holds open the space for that to happen mm-hmm there is the Pollyanna part of me that's like, this is going to happen. You know, this could happen because of course it could happen. You know, there are plenty of smart people who write or who make art. And, you know, it's just about finding the right um, mix, like the right moment for it all to congeal and and like actually be something beautiful. Um, But I also think that when I wasn't after having written that book, I felt like I was able to then assume the other end of the spectrum and be a lot more negative about the state of art criticism. Mm-hmm. Partly that has to do with me working out my own ambitions. And so I think the solution that I've found, the thing that is interesting to me now, is to write a series of a, a book that's a series of essays on contemporary art, as though they're short stories, mm. that bring out such different um, hist- histories and attitudes and ideals, and just put them all next to each other, so that they create this really complex world, this this kind of multifaceted world, mm. and that that might be almost like the baby steps of modeling why something could be meaningful Mm -hmm. or why a work of art matters like why is a work of art useful to think about Mm -hmm. because it is but like how does that work because otherwise if it's not something that enters into your mind and your heart and becomes integrated to how you process your experience of being alive and and make decisions that are modified in some way by the experience of art then um, it's just a thing on a wall that's for sale. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not interested in the for sale part of it, it's just, it's not even like it bothers. It's like I don't mind that things are for sale. That doesn't bother me, but like, but I I just don't care about that part of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I write about some artist whose work gets sold for a million dollars. I write about other artists whose work does not get sold. That distinction is is made by a process of evaluation that is not my process. It does not hierarchically dictate which of those of those artworks I think is more meaningful, more beautiful, more important. And so I think my job as a writer is trying to create a space where someone who is not me could enter into, um, c- could enter into dialogue or, or experience a worldview, where that is the case. Right. Where everything does not have to be reduced to the the structures of value and and understanding that we have inherited.
0: Right. I see I see what you're saying that that there's a kind of engineered optimism to some of these projects for you and I have to say it's a similar position that we're holding as we endeavor this season of the podcast I wanted to to jump a conversation that felt more productive and I see you doing the same thing if only to sort of try to wrap a, a very long arm around what it is that we have valued historically um, whether that's directing in the negative or the positive sense for you is is of interest to me but that sweep um, I'm grateful for it I'm grateful for the attention and the care that you're bringing to the discipline of art criticism right now. I'm, I'm confident it's not where you'll stay, but I'm grateful for it. <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> uh, as a last question, and maybe this is a good, a good one to end on. I wanted to talk about feeling and I wanted to talk about love. Your interview with Peter Schaldel produced one of the finest and most provocative lines from him around, and I'm not sure if he's issued them elsewhere, but He said, feelings are the only facts we can trust. Thoughts are the lawyers of feelings. I wanted to talk to you a bit about your experience of bringing love, bringing feeling, bringing heat, something intemperate to the the process of writing and also viewing. If it's useful to you or if you try to enact a self-discipline around it. And if you gravitate to that which is produced from feeling over thought.
1: Well... I think the only reason that we have to discuss feeling as a novel um, element in art criticism is because it was like like banished for a long time. And it's like, I don't think that, I don't distinguish between thought and feelings the way that Peter does. I think that when you engage with a work of art, you engage as as a whole person. And it was made as a whole person. And that person includes thoughts, feelings, sexuality. It also includes spirituality. And I think something that has been increasingly interesting to me is how we could have a story that, um, of art or stories about art, that um, avail themselves of a non-material perspective and so for instance it's like everyone in new york went crazy for the hilma off clint show and that to me is part of what we're saying which is like what if there was this what if there was a history of abstraction that that had a different purpose that was like actually made by someone who was talking to spirit guides on the astral plane rather than someone who was doing a pro, a semiotic game around like the shape of the mouth of a guitar it's not that one of those <laughs> has to triumph but it means that if you demarcate the boundary of legibility on one side where feelings and spirituality and sex and race and class are all on one side of the boundary uh, okay maybe we'll let class come in now maybe we'll let race come in now but if we're not Willing to engage with a work of art as the product of a full human being, it limits so many, um, it it limits our ability to even understand what many artists have done. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, a painter named Michael Stam, who I love, recently we were having dinner and he said, it's like modernism, it's like we're all in high school and modernism is the jock and everyone is just trying to now date the jock. Mm. And so you have like queer modernism, people of color and modernism. And it's like, that's cool. Like, yeah, everyone should get to fuck the jock. But that leaves in place the social hierarchy in which like the jock is still in, is still the top of the school. And what we actually need is to completely change that hierarchy. And so, like, yes, white men were able to make boring abstract paintings and get paid for them for a long time. And it's great now that a queer person can make boring abstract paintings and get paid for them. But that leaves intact what is the um, overarching mechanism of oppression. For instance, you can slot in... The work of a black abstract painter now and say, okay, now we all love this and this is a great artist and we're going to buy these things for a lot of money, but that doesn't change the fundamental mechanisms of evalu- evaluation. And so for instance, I think that Jack Witten is a great artist, but Jack Witten's work has a context in which he had very interesting philosophical and spiritual ideas. Related to a backdrop of political experience in the United States for for African Americans in particular, which is bound up with a certain spiritual tradition. And if we're not allowed to understand his work in that way, but instead have to plop it into a progression of post-painterly abstraction, the work does not get to inhabit its radical fullness And then what it also does is it maintains separate channels of like a major discourse of of modern and contemporary art. And then, you know, Native American artists get to go along the side and eventually they kind of touch. And it's like, that's not possible to maintain that fiction any longer. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at the wreckage of our present, it's asking A lot from, I mean, it's asking us to get very real about the bitter inheritance that we have as people in the United States and to deconstruct that. The only thing that I would like to say that kind of sums up all of this and connects to the question about love is that the function of love within criticism for me is about moving away from fear. And I think the discourse is dominated by fear Mm -hmm. and people who are trying to protect themselves, protect their little pathetic social standing, protect their phony baloney jobs or whatever. This is where I get optimistic. I have faith in art and I have faith in people who love art in that. Like I will ask myself the question, okay, what if everything that I think doesn't matter? Like what if all of it is irrelevant? The entire colonial patriarchal structure that produced a certain ideas of art as valuable, if all of that were allowed to just fully collapse and we're sifting through the wreckage, I believe that the things that we find in the wreckage that make it through that process will still be beautiful and meaningful and in fact will be more beautiful and more meaningful because we're then allowed to see them for what they are or what they could be rather than trying to protect this embattled thing that otherwise is going to be destroyed. Like, I think that there is a resilience in um, in serious art. I mean, it's existed for a long time. Art has always existed. Interestingly, it's almost always existed in relationship to some religious or spiritual protocol. And I think that's part of its... Um, level of of significance within culture but you know human beings it is inseparable from us art and so if we have to go through a really rough time of shattering and shucking the aspects of the things that have ensconced itself around art whether it's discursively institutionally um interpersonally you know I think that that's a good thing. I actually think that it's a really exciting time to be alive and to be in the art world. Even though I complain about it all the time and I think everything is bad and all writing is bad, I think that that is a really amazing opportunity to try and find something even more amazing, and um, and that's why I want to keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: I love that this was like a very long job interview for your <laughs> sustained <laughs> presence in the. Airport. Momus, The podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank Jared Ernest for his impassioned contribution to this episode. If you'd like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca. This has been Episode 13 of Momus, the podcast.